So we finish our meditation this evening in Jesus' final week. And it culminates, of course, in his crucifixion. As I said this morning, Jesus' crucifixion, I'm persuaded, should be thought of by us as his enthronement. His greatest moment of shame and suffering must be viewed by us, paradoxically, as his greatest moment of victory, glory, and achievement. And so that's what we're going to do this evening as we we wrap this up. Sinclair Ferguson in his little Let's um, Study Mark commentary says, Christ made the cross his first throne. It was there he triumphed over his enemies. It was there he conquered our great foes. It was there that our crucified king was enthroned over his kingdom. Now, if, you, if you're one of the, uh, if someone who studied the book of Mark and uh, you know anything about it, you'll know that one of the distinctive features to Mark's gospel is that it's very fast-paced. So his favorite word is immediately, and, and. Immediately, 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 and, and, and. Um, and, and, and Mark's not verbose. He's not long-winded. He's actually very succinct. But what's really strange about the section we come to tonight, it's like he changes the tempo. He slows everything right down. In previous sections, he's covered entire the events of weeks and just a passage and days and just a passage. But now he's going to cover six hours with the verses that we read from, verses 25 to to, uh, 39. And it's because this event, the most momentous event in history of the universe, is really hard for us to take in. And so Mark slows down so that we can take it in by blow. And so tonight, that's all we're going to do. We're going to walk slowly through this passage as Mark would have us. Interestingly, in this section, it's divided into two sections because Mark divides it into two three-hour bulletins. You see there, if you look down at verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And then look down at verse 33, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So we're just going to divide this section up by looking at the first three hours, and then look at the second three hours. And Mark wants to take us to low Bible, so let's just walk through verse 5 hours. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. That is to say, it was 9 a.m. on Good Friday morning. The next thing that Mark wants us to know was the charge that was placed over his head. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Here's the charge that the servant carried behind the four soldiers. The king of the Jews. It was paraded as they had processed down the Via della Rosa and to the hill of Golgotha. And now it would be pinned at the top of the cross. Here's a charge of why Jesus was condemned. He 
is king of the Jews. Now, what's strange about this is that the Jews wanted him to say he claims to be king of the Jews. But Pilate refused. And the question is, why did Pilate refuse? When he had tried Jesus, and he said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it is as you say. And, and, and it seems that Pilate, as he cross-examined Jesus, the one thing he was convinced of was Jesus was innocent. When he said, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? They said, Jesus, crucify him. Why? What evil has this man done? Perhaps Pilate realized Jesus was a king, but for sure it was, as he said in John's gospel to him, he was a king of a kingdom that was from an entire different world. Well, Pilate didn't change the sign. He just had it say the king of the Jews. And this actually made the Jews furious. Interestingly, all the way through this passage, it's been the Romans mocking Jesus. But now you've got the Romans Pilate mocking all the Jews. This is your king. And the reason he was being crucified was because of the Jews. But in one of Mark's great ironies and paradoxes, this was the most fitting sign to go above Jesus' head. Because he was the king of the Jews. Truly was, is, and will forever be. Not just the king of the Jews, but the king of the universe. We know in John's gospel that the sign, the king of the Jews, was written in three different languages. Aramaic, Latin, Greek. That day that this city would have been filled with pilgrims, as we've already made mention of this morning. And if a father was there with his, if a son was there with his father and they stood at the bottom of the hill of Golgotha, the son might say to his father, Father, why are those men up there? The father said, Let's let's take a walk up. And they come to the first cross and they look at the sign above his head and it says, Thief. And they come to the middle cross and they look up. What does it say, Father? It's king of the Jews. Really? King of the Jews? Yes, son. King of the Jews. People from all across the world could read this fact that Pilate pinned above Jesus' head. John Calvin points out that in God's providence, he governed the governor's pen to write Jesus as king above his head so that everyone would know who he was. And we must not overlook this fact that as Mark is presenting Jesus' crucifixion to us, he is presenting us Jesus dying on this cross as his greatest kingly act. The Romans saw a condemned criminal. The Jews saw a blasphemer. But we, with the eyes of faith, we should see our king, yes, with his crown of thorns and with this sign, the king of the Jews. And we should stand in awe. So we know the time that Jesus was put to death, nine o'clock. We know the charge that was written above his head. Mark then wants us to note the position that Jesus was in when he was crucified. Look at verse 27. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Again, the diligent student of Mark's gospel would say, I've heard that phrase before, one on his right and one on his left. That's Mark chapter 10. That's when James and John came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. Jesus says, okay, what is it you want me to do? Grant that one of us sits on your left and one of us sits on your right in your glory. Now, the problem with James and John is that they had a total wrong understanding of the messianic reign of Christ. They thought Jesus had come, he was going to overthrow the Romans and he was going to establish his kingdom in Israel and set a throne up in Jerusalem and rule over the world. And they said, Jesus, we want to be at your right hand and your left hand. And remember what Jesus said to them? You do not know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, to sit at my right or, or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And now we discover who it was that would be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his glory. Two condemned criminals. Two transgressors. Two thieves. It was always planned and purposed that this would be the case. Isaiah chapter 53 was he would be numbered the suffering servant of the Lord with the transgressors. If you are a diligent reader of the passage we read tonight, did you see that there's a verse missing? Verse 28 is not there. And verse 28 is not there because verse 28 is a reference to the fact that Jesus, being crucified with two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, was a fulfillment of Isaiah. But that verse only appears in later manuscripts. And so the people who put our Bibles together aren't convinced it was part of the original, but it's there in the footnote. But the point still stands, it was echoed in these later transcripts, is that Jesus was fulfilling ancient prophecy. At his left and at his right would be transgressors. He would be numbered among the transgressors, says Isaiah, for he bore the sin of many. You know, if any Jew walked past the hill of Golgotha and any son said to his father, what is actually going on there? They would say they are criminals who have been condemned to death. They might even go further. Cursed is he who hangs in a tree. There is no hope in hell for any of those men, son, on those crosses. They're the worst of the worst sinners. They've been condemned and they're hanging on a tree. They're cursed men. And we need to see that as Jesus hung on the cross and he hung on the middle cross. Actually, he had the preeminent place. He had the first place. The son would say, why? What did the man in the middle cross do? Well, he's the worst of them all. He's the greatest sinner of those three men. Jesus, to the 
any man's eye who stood at the foot of cross looked like a condemned criminal. He looked like a sinner of the worst kind. And it was because that was the reality. On the cross, he who knew no sin was made sin. Because he'd come to take away people's sin. And he wasn't just reckoned as a sinner in the sight of men. He was reckoned a sinner in the sight of God. Mark clearly wants us to get this in our minds. There on the cross, Jesus bore the person of a sinner. He was the worst adulterer. He was the worst murderer. He was the worst blasphemer. He was the worst robber. He was the worst of the worst. That's what Martin Luther says when he he tries to unpack Christ on the cross. Because he had become sin. The sin of all of his people on him. Isn't it funny that, that back in Mark chapter 10, they, they said, Jesus, we want to, James and John, we want to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. If you know John's gospel, when he talks about the glory of Christ, what does it refer to? His death. This is Christ's glory. This is his throne. This is his place of rule and reign. Him as a sinner. Him at the center. Him on the cross. Okay, so we've looked at the time, we've looked at the charge, we've looked at the position and the place of Jesus. Now Mark wants us to hear the chorus of derision. And what's really fascinating is that there's three different groups that mock Jesus. In the first three hours that he hung on the cross, three different groups mocked Jesus. First of all, there there are the passers-by. Verse 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The second group of mockers were the religious leaders, the chief priests with the scribes. They mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. And then the third group of mockers were his co-crucified. They also reviled him. And it's, it's like Mark, what he wants us to see was the mockery was comprehensive. Everybody was mocking Jesus. The passers-by, the religious leaders, the criminals. These, these groups are a picture of all of humanity. Can I be really honest? If you had been there, you would have mocked Christ. You would have said the exact same thing. Stuart Townsend gets it brilliantly in his hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. See, the problem with everybody who saw Christ hanging on the cross was they were blind to who he was. And it's actually staggering that they were blind. He had a sign above his head that told everyone who he was. 
He had a crown on his head of thorns that demonstrated and showcased that he was a king. And yet still people were blind to him and so they mocked him. You saved others, save yourself. Do you know how I'm convinced that if I had been at the cross or if you'd been at the cross, you'd have said the same thing? Because in every single voice of the mockers around Christ, they said the same thing. But they learned it from someone. Satan. Because in Satan's temptation with Christ in the wilderness, at the beginning of his public ministry, Satan virtually said the exact same thing. Jesus, you don't need to go through with the cross. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, you can forgo the cup. And here, in these three hours, the first three hours of the cross, here's Satan and he's got the people and they're mocking Christ and they're saying to him, come on Christ, save yourself and come down. Now it's hard, right? It's hard to communicate all the pain that Christ must have been going through as he was hanging on the cross. We've touched on the physical torture and torment. We've touched on the, the spiritual side, the, the emotional side. I can't imagine how his head must have felt. You know, you got a sore head and a migraine. Think of his, the front of his skin ruptured and punctured because of the crown of thorns. Think of his eyes, bloody, black, bloody, blue. See it all because he's been beaten with the rod. Think of his mouth, dry as dry can be, his tongue sticking to the top. Think of his back in pain and agony. But you know what's really interesting? The reason I highlight all of that? is because when you read Mark's account, you get the sense that the real pain is not in the physical, not in the spiritual, even the emotional at this point, it's truly in the mental. Because from the start of this crucifixion, from the mock coronation to the procession, the now to his enthronement, it's all been mockery. Have you ever been mocked? Has someone ever mocked you for the way you are, the way you dress, the way you look, the way you sound? There's something about mockery, right? Right under the skin, it cuts deep. And here's Jesus and he's in great pain. And these men, as he's battling with the pain and the agony, they're taunting him. They're mocking him. We, we, we sang just in Psalm 22 there, just to, to get, give you a sense of it. The men who mocked him were like dogs who circled around him. The menace that came from their mouths was like the, the fury of lions. Now, this is what I need you to see, is that a king in the ancient world, if he was a king, he was measured by the fact that he would save his people, that he would conquer their enemies. And here's the torment that Jesus received. Jesus, you saved others, but you can't even save yourself. So much of a king you are. Come down from the cross. The religious leader said to him, Jesus, if you come down from the cross, we'll believe. 
And yet here's the thing. It was because Jesus did not come down from the cross but stayed on the cross and didn't save himself that he saved others. It's because Jesus stayed on the cross that we can believe in him and know life. It's because Jesus stayed on the cross that you and I can experience salvation. You know, I think one of the reasons that Mark slows this account right down is because see if you and I leave this and we don't say thank you to Jesus, we've missed the cross. He suffered, endured this torrent of torment for you and me. He bled and he died for you and me. I know one thing for absolute certain. No one has ever loved me like Jesus has. No one's ever suffered abuse for me like Jesus has. No one's ever died for me. But Jesus has. No one has ever had a go through what Jesus had for me. Well, that's just the first three hours. And by the way, the real suffering hasn't even begun. It began at 12 p.m. So then we get to verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was a darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they mention the darkness. The darkness is key. It's highly significant. The whole land was covered in darkness. Like, let's just be clear, this is supernatural darkness. It was Passover. And Passover meant it was full moon. And this couldn't be an eclipse. It couldn't be just a brief moment because with a full moon, you can't get an eclipse. And this just wasn't a momentary fleeting darkness. This was a darkness that lasted three long hours that must have felt to Jesus like an eternity. Now, we've got to ask the question, what could this darkness mean? Well, our fathers, the the great minds, the great divines, they've, they've wrestled with what this darkness could mean, they all offer different answers. One possibility is that it was a tribute to the majesty of Jesus. In other words, here was the father marking the death of his son. Remember when Jesus was born, God put a star in the sky, light. Now that Jesus was dying, he made sure it was dark. Interestingly, it's prophesied in Amos chapter 8 verse 9 in that day I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight that verse comes in the context of apocalyptic judgment and so from this point of view it was entirely appropriate to see the darkness as a sign of the judgment that God was exercising on his son in fact it was because that Jesus on the cross he had be made sin, God's verdict of sin was darkness because his pure and holy eyes cannot even look upon sin. 
There's a, a, a suggestion that there's a connection between the, the, the second last plague in the Exodus, darkness, followed by the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn son. One commentator says the darkness of Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was going to give his life for the sins of the world. Samuel Rutherford, in one of his communion sermons, said the darkness was all in Judea when our Lord suffered. Why? Because the candle that lighted the sun and the moon was blown out. Now, just so that we can understand how dark things got for Jesus, we need to read the next verse. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. We don't know the language Jesus spoke with the other six sayings. But we know in this saying, he spoke in his mother tongue, Aramaic. This is the only saying on the cross that Mark highlights. It mattered to Mark. That means it must matter to you and I. On the cross at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cry of dereliction. Now, this is one of those verses that you come to and you can easily start ripping your theology of God apart. We're really on holy ground here. There's great mystery here. So, so I don't want to say anything that would give you the wrong impression about what happened. But what I want to point out to you is that we know that Jesus at his lowest ebb his mind instinctively, says Donald McLeod, breathes the psalter. And from it, he borrows the words that express the anguish, not of one's body, but of one's soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Here's where some people get this wrong. They say that because of Jesus being forsaken from God, the Trinity was ruptured. Let's be really clear. Christ's forsakenness cannot mean that the eternal communion between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was broken. Because then the Trinity would cease to be the Trinity. Neither could it mean that the Father ceased to love the Son, especially not at this moment, especially not now. Because we know from what Jesus said elsewhere that when he was offering this sacrifice, it was the greatest tribute to his fatherly love. Nor, again, can it mean that the Holy Spirit had ceased to minister to his son, because we know the Holy Spirit came down at Jesus' baptism, and he wasn't just with Jesus for a moment. He was with Jesus up until the very end. As Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews says, it was through the eternal spirit through whom the son offered himself to God. And finally, and this is where I think some people get it wrong in another way, these words are not a cry of despair. Because despair would be a sin. For Jesus. Yet with all of these qualifiers being said, let me say this. 
this was a real forsakenness. Like, let me be even more clear. Jesus did not merely feel forsaken. He was forsaken. Martin Luther was going to preach a sermon once in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he sat in his study and his servant girl watched him. She came, brought him some food, and, and she noticed that as he, he sat at his desk preparing his sermon, he, he, he just sat there like transfixed. It's like his mind was in another world. She came back five hours later and he was still in the same spot, still looking the exact same way. And then she heard him get up and he said these words, God forsaken of God. Who can understand it? So that is to say, Christ was forsaken. For those hours on the cross when everything went dark, he, the sin bearer, the curse bearer, was forsaken. You know, in every other time that Christ spoke on the cross, he, he said, Father, forgive them for they, know no, for they know not what they do. Father, into my hands, into your hands, I commit my spirit. But here it's not Father. It's my God. My God. Now, don't miss it. He's in relationship with God. My God. But he doesn't feel the love of God. He doesn't feel that, that, that intimacy that he, he's, he's known with God from all eternity. Now here, he's numbered with the transgression, transgressors. Here, he is sin. Here, he is condemned. Here, he is suffering the wrath of God for our Sin. When he says Eloi, Eloi, it's God's name El, and it means God Almighty or God All Holy. The sufferings of his souls, the old divine used to say, were the soul of his suffering, and into that soul we can see but dimly. His cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? may have been a public cry, but it expressed the intensely private anguish of a tension between the sin-bearing son and his heavenly father. That means that I don't think any of us could ever really enter into what Christ experienced. You know, the only people who could really understand what Christ experienced are those who are presently in hell. Here is the good news of the forsakenness of Christ. He endured it for us. He endured it to save us from it. I've heard some people, right, when they when they preach on the sufferings of Christ on the cross and they, they, they take this verse, they they end up saying something to the effect of, because Christ said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He can sympathize with all of us who feel forsaken. And I think that's a, a right reality that Christ can sympathize with us because he's been through all of our 
experiences, but I think that's a wrong example. Christ did not learn on the cross how to sympathize with us when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? None of us will ever go through the forsakenness of God that he went through if we trust in him. I think the point that Christ achieved for us as he was forsaking of God was not sympathy, but he achieved for us immunity from ever feeling or experiencing eternal forsakenness. And brothers and sisters, we need to slow things right down. This is the moment we need to say, thank you, Jesus. He went to hell for you, for me, for your sin, for my sin. Every single sin he satisfied the divine justice of God for. You know the great mystery of that verse, Eloi, Eloi, Lama, Sabachthani, is the question that he does ask is why? Why him who's innocent? And we're the guilty ones. It's the cry of the innocent against the unjust suffering. And in one sense, why him? Because it was only him that could go through it. It was only the sinless son of God that could be our perfect toning sacrifice, give himself as a perfect toning sacrifice. Why have you forsaken me? I wonder if there's a, a real sense of amazement behind that question. Jesus, he'd never experienced anything like it until the sixth hour when everything went dark and until the ninth hour when he said those words, it is finished. You know, one of the things I've not really appreciated until now, Jesus suffered hell only those three hours. In our tradition, we, we, we confess the Apostles' Creed, but see when it says he, he descended to hell, that's a place of the dead. We, we actually read tonight in the, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what happens to believers... At death, the souls of believers at death are made perfect in holiness, immediately pass into glory. Their bodies being still united to Christ, rest in the graves until the resurrection. Christ went immediately into glory. Immediately into glory. Do you know how I know that? He said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Right now, we're going to paradise. As soon as you die, see you in paradise. His body was in the grave but only until the resurrection because then his body and soul would be reunited again and so as we as we stand here we're supposed to see the amazing victory that was won for us he was forsaken so that you and I may never be forsaken and I just want to show you the impact of his death and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. His death accomplished what it was always planned and purposed to. He provided perfect atonement, which provided access for us into the holy presence of God. He, in verse 37, uttered with a loud cry, and then he breathed his last. And then we read, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
started the sermon, I said, every time you think about the cross, you need to see it as Jesus' enthronement. You need to see this as the enthronement of the Son of God. Mark gives us this Roman centurion's response as he looks on at Jesus suffering, breathing his last, crying out it is finished. He believed. And brothers and sisters, I've got to ask us the question, do we really believe he was forsaken so that you could be forgiven? Do you really believe he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not so that he could sympathize with us, but ultimately so that we would receive immunity from the curse and the condemnation our sins deserve. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, it changes everything. You are a new creation. You are his. And it's all because your king died for you on the cross. There's no king like this. No king who compares. Let's pray.